Well, it's great to be back with you and uh, speaking this time about the second of the two covenants of Islam. The first one was the Shahada of surrender to Islam itself through agreeing to be a Muslim and all the implications that meant of being wedded to the example and the teaching of Muhammad. And the second covenant is the covenant of the Dhimma, D-H-I-M-M-A, the, the, the pact of surrender to Islam, which non-Muslims make uh, when they agree or are forced to accept that they will live under Islam but keep their own religion. Um, this particular subject is less well known uh, than the life of Muhammad and the basics of Islam. So I'm going to cover it in two sessions, not just one session. And uh, untangling or laying out the spiritual implications of it uh, take, will take some time. Uh, so this, uh, these next two sessions will be devoted to the Dhimma. So this is the Dhimma part one, and then we'll have the Dhimma part two. But first, let us consider what the Bible says. The Torah, the law of Moses says, about how the Israelites should treat aliens in their land. These are people living amongst the Jews or amongst the Israelites who are not themselves Jews. Well, it's very interesting because in the law there are a number of statements that they should be treated with compassion. Uh, for example, in Leviticus chapter 19 from verse 33, when an alien lives among you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the people of Israel are asked to love those who live among them who aren't Jews as they love themselves. And... Um, also, when they're harvesting in the field, they should leave something for the vulnerable, including the alien. In Deuteronomy 24, when you're harvesting your field and overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. That is, don't, don't pick up every bit of wheat in the harvest. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. That is, if you care for the vulnerable, including those that aren't Jews living in your midst, God will bless you. And some of the principles that are taught in the Torah about caring for the aliens are reciprocity, equality, compassion, the fear of the Lord. It's argued in the scriptures that just, had, just as God had mercy on the Israelites in Egypt um, when they were subject to uh, cruel punishment as aliens in Egypt, so the Israelites should show mercy to the aliens living among them. And in fact, the later prophets uh, list mistreatment of aliens as one of the sins for which God was punishing Israel. So, for example, Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 6, See how each of the princes of Israel who are in you uses his power to shed blood. In you they have treated father and mother with contempt. In you they have oppressed the alien and mistreated the fatherless and the widow. So abuse of this requirement to love the alien, love the, the, the non-Israelite in your midst, was a very serious matter, and God brought judgment upon Israel. And, of course, Jesus reiterated this principle in the peril of the good Samaritan. Who is your neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. And you remember the law said, love the alien living among you in your land as yourself. Now, in contrast to the biblical model of treating a, a foreigner living among you as being like yourself, someone you should love as yourself, have feelings for in, towards them as, as God has had towards you, the system of Islamic rule for those who are not Muslims is very different. It's based on the need to discriminate and to treat non-Muslims as inferiors. The term uh, for the covenant of the relationship between Muslims and non-Muslims after conquest is the dhimma, and a term that's used to describe the psychology and the whole situation of non-Muslims living under Islam is dhimmitude. Uh, that's uh, defined by Bat Yeor, who's a historian of the dhimmis, the people of Islam living under Islam who aren't Muslims. 
Dimitrucci said, is the totality of the characteristics developed in the long term by communities who have been subject to the jihad uh, uh, in their own ancestral lands. So that's what we'll be speaking about. Now, the word Islam means submission, but there are two kinds of submission, as we saw earlier. The submission of the convert, who accepts to be a Muslim, and the other is surrender of the defeated non-believer, of the Christian or, or others. Uh, Bassam Tibi, who was, uh, who was Professor of International Relations at Göttingen University in Germany, defines the mission of Islam as waging war until non-Muslims accept uh, one of those two options, either the Shahada or the Dhimma. So he said, um, at its core, Islam is a religious mission to all humanity. And Muslims are religiously obliged to disseminate the Islamic faith throughout the world. We've sent you forth to all mankind, says the Quran, chapter 34, verse 28. If non-Muslims submit to conversion or subjugation, either of those two covenants, this call can be pursued peacefully. If they do not, Muslims are, are obliged to wage war against them. So that's the, the other alternative is the sword to the shahada or the dhimma. So he said, in Islam, peace requires that non-Muslims submit to the call of Islam, either converting or by accepting the status of a religious minority. I think he meant a politically dominated group and paying the, the poll tax. So I'll be speaking about what it means to live under this system and, and exploring that. Actually, the principle of treating non-Muslims as conquered peoples goes right back to the beginning to Muhammad. Uh, Ibn Umar said that um, Muhammad said, I have been ordered by Allah to fight against the people until they testify that none has the right to be worshipped but Allah and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. So this is the institution of jihad to fight against non-believers until they agree that Allah is God and uh, Muhammad is his messenger. But a concession is given that allows certain people uh, to surrender and keep their faith as long as they agreed that Muslims would uh, be over them. Um, Al-Tabari describes a series of statements made by Caliph Umar at the time of the conquest of Syria and Palestine. And the, he gave instructions to the armies of Islam, summon the people to God, those who respond to your call, accept their conversion from them, but those who refuse must pay the poll tax, the jizya, out of humiliation or lowliness, that is the surrender. If they refuse this, it is the sword without leniency. So these are the three choices. One is become a Muslim, another is the sword, and the, finally there's the possibility of surrender and living under the, the Dhimma pact. Muhammad himself uh, said this. Muhammad said, fight in the name of Allah and in the way of Allah. Fight against those who don't believe in Allah, that is non-Muslims effectively. Make a jihad. When you meet your enemies who are polytheists, that is not Muslims, Invite them to three courses of action. If they respond to any of the, these, accept it and withhold yourself from doing any harm. Invite them to Islam. If they respond, accept it and desist from fighting them. If they refuse to accept Islam, demand from them the jizya, the tax of surrender. If they refuse that, then uh, seek Allah's help and fight them. Well, what does it mean? Well, what does it mean to surrender to Islam, to live under Islamic rule? That's what we're going to look at, to make that choice of not Islam and not the sword, but just to be surrendered. Well, there's an Arab chant that's quite popular in the Middle East today, as Kaibar Kaibar Yayahud, Jais Muhammad Sayyid. Remember Kaibar, O Jews, Muhammad's army will return. And I'd like to begin in enter into this subject of what does the Dhimma Pact of Surrender mean by speaking about Kaibar. 
Chaibar was a place in, in uh, Arabia where mainly Jews lived. It was a Jewish community uh, farming and looking after their, their, their date, date palms and other trees and so on. And um, Muhammad, after he dealt with the Jews in Medina and driven some out and killed others, took his armies and attacked Khaibar where these Jews were living and he told them to accept Islam, which they refused to do, and then he began to fight them. And the battle went on for some time and some of them were defeated and enslaved, uh, but the rest of the Jews in Khaibar negotiated a surrender. That was the first time that a negotiated surrender in battle conditions had occurred in, in the development of Islam. And they, they pointed out to the Muslims that only they had the skills to manage these plantations and it would be better for the Muslims to let them stay there and produce the produce and, and, and grow the crops and so on uh, that would produce the wealth. So the Jews were allowed to stay on the condition um, that the property then began, belonged to Muhammad and to the Muslims, but the Jews would give half of their, of their harvest to the Muslims. And they said to Muhammad, we know about it more than you and we're better farmers. So they were allowed to keep their, 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 to stay on their land and uh, their produce went 50% of it to the Muslims. So this was the first Dhimma pact, the pact of surrender, a covenant of liability. The word Dhimma in Arabic is derived from an Arabic verb, Dhamma, which means to blame or find fault with in respect of some bad characteristic. It's the opposite of praise. And dhimma implies a liability or a debt that's owed through some sort of fault. So you could translate the word dhimma as a pact of liability. Now, based on this precedent of Khaibar, defeating the Jews in Khaibar, and also some other communities that Muhammad conquered, Fada and Taima and Wadi al-Qura, um, this institution of, the, of, the, of the, the pact of surrender was developed in Islamic law to provide a way for what were called people of the book to live as non-Muslims under Islam. And this establishes, on the basis of the precedent of what Muhammad did, it establishes the basis in Islamic law for the treatment of all of the non-Muslims who have ever come to live under Islamic rule. Because of the way Muhammad treated the Jews in Kaaba, that becomes the basis of Sharia law. Remember, Sharia is the way that you walk on, and the stones that, that are along the way that are part of the pavement of that way are the things that Muhammad did and said. So it's Muhammad's treatment of the Jews in Kaibar that gives the basis for the establishment of this Dhimma pact of surrender. <coughs> now, the Dhimmis, uh, the people that surrender who are called Dhimmis, the people of this Dhimma pact, are required to pay a tax and uh, accept the, the rule of Islam over them, but they're allowed to keep their faith. There's a verse in the Quran which is regarded as the basis of this by the Muslim experts, the scholars. It says, 929, Surah 9, verse 29, Fight against those who do not believe in Allah of those who have been given the book. And so fight against those who have received the book, that is, Jews and Christians. And specifically it says those that don't follow what Muhammad says until they pay the jizya or tribute out of hand and are humbled. So the command says fight, and remember again the word fight means to kill in Arabic. Fight against, do battle against these, these people of the book, the Christians of Jews, if they don't accept Islam, until they surrender and are humbled. Now this pact of surrender that is spoken about in 929 in the Quran gives a place for Jews, Christians and others living under Islamic law, a degree of religious freedom, they could keep their faith, provided they, they agreed to the conditions of, of the surrender. There's the jizya tax, which is a head tax. It's levied on all the men that has to be paid once a year uh, to the uh, Islamic community, to the Muslim community, in recognition of their defeat. 
Notice that this verse 929 establishes a link between the jihad, the command to extend Islam by fighting, and the dhimma, the covenant of surrender of the non-Muslims. So jihad and the dhimma, the, the fighting and the surrender, go, go, go together. Interestingly, only the people of the book were allowed to surrender. Muhammad said that pagan Arabs were not. Um, so, for example, Abu Yusuf, who was a jurist in 798, ruled that pagan Arabs could only have the Islam or the sword. And indeed, a lot of Arabs were killed in the, law, in the wars of apostasy after Muhammad died. There was a battle and a lot of Arabs wanted to go back to their old religion. They were only given two choices, Islam or the sword. But people of the book, uh, extended later to include even Hindus, were given a third choice, which was surrender, um, surrender to Islamic rule. Now, I'd like to unpack Surah 929, this verse in the Quran, and look at some of the elements in it. You're meant to fight the people of the book until they pay the jizya out of hand and are humbled. And we'll talk about each of those three elements. Paying the jizya. What is this tax? It, it means tribute or compensation. And the famous uh, uh, Andalusian jurist, Averroes, or he's called so-called Ibn Rushdi, he explained that according to the, the experts of Islam, taking jizya or tribute from Jews and Christians is one of the whole purposes of making war in Islam. So he said, why wage war? The Muslim jurists agree that the purpose of fighting the people of the book is one of two things, either for their conversion to Islam or for the payment of the jizya. The payment of the jizya is because of the words of the exalted, and he quotes 929, fight against those who've been given the scripture as believed not in Allah or the last day and forbid not that which Allah and his messenger have forbidden and don't follow the religion of truth, that is the Jews and Christians and others, until they pay the tribute readily, being brought low. Averroes explains that this, um, this jizya tribute is a broader concept um, than just the head tax on the dhimmis. For example, if you attacked a city and asked them to pay you a large sum of money so you wouldn't attack them anymore, that was also called jizya. The best way really to translate the word jizya in, in English is to call it tribute. So the conquered peoples were required to pay tribute each year. The scholar Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, writing in the early 14th century, classified the income of the Islamic State into different categories. He said, well, one category that the Muslim State gets is booty that's taken by force. So you go and you tax someone and take their property. Another is the contributions that Muslims make as a religious duty, um, uh, as, a, as, a, as a given to the mosque and so on. But the third is called fay income, which includes the jizya, and these are resources that are released without force being necessary. And this word, fay, is from a, from a word meaning uh, to restore or, or return to a good state. And this is regarded by Muslim uh, experts, uh, exocographers, people that worked writing dictionaries. They defined this fay, which the, the jizya is part of this, as the possessions of the unbelievers which come to the Muslims without war um, after the laying down of arms. So that the, the non-Muslims make a peace and they pay this money to save themselves. Um, one uh, uh, dictionary uh, says, or a Muslim dictionary says, that this is money that's been restored to the people, to the Muslims, um, without fighting, either because the non-Muslims leave their homes and run away, or the non-Muslims make peace on the condition of paying this tax or other money or property to save themselves from slaughter. So this is money that the non-Muslims pay in order to stop themselves from being killed. 
Ibn Taymiyyah also said that this money that's paid by the non-Muslims is actually something that's restored to the Muslims. So the whole earth belongs to Islam, and when Islam conquers the nation and takes the money from the people, uh, they're actually liberating the money. So it's being restored back to the Muslims because uh, he said Allah has created the things of the world only that they can contribute to serve him. Um, so he said that um, when the non-Muslims pay this tax, this is a restitution, a return to the Muslims, and this is restored to the Muslim, the inheritance of which he was deprived, even though he never owned it before, even though he'd never possessed it before. It's a restoration. So Islamic law regards this tax that non-Muslims pay as, as a restoration, as a kind of liberation of those resources. Uh, there's a quite a lot of uh, dictionaries and commentators that have defined jizya, and they all refer to this idea of compensation, compensating the Muslims. Um, for example, Abu Hayyan said it's called jizya because it's taken from the root J, Z, Y, uh, they're the three consonants, which mean to return compensation for what's been given, as if they were rewarding those who gave them security and life and property. So the jizya is a compensation paid uh, for keeping your head. This is based on um, Arabic, pre-Muslim Arabic tradition that if you attacked an enemy and conquered them and you let them live, then they owed you their life. Like you'd be entitled to take their property and to kill, you, kill them. Um, the, 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 the attacker would be entitled to take all the property and to kill you um, or to take the wives and children as slaves. But he gives up that right and, and when he does that by letting you live, you then owe, you, you owe him compensation for that. Alalusi said jizya means pay off your debts or reward him what's being done for me, for the, the non-Muslims pay it as a reward to go, those who gave them a pardon from death. And another commentator, um, Atfayish, who died in 1914, he said that jizya is a satisfaction for their blood. Um, it has sufficed to compensate for their not being slain. Its purpose is to substitute for the duties. He uses the Arabic word bajib, which means an obligatory uh, duty of every Muslim. Muslims are relieved of the duty of killing and of enslaving non-Muslims. Uh, for, it's for the benefit of Muslims. So the tax the non-Muslims pay relieves the Muslims of their religious obligation to kill and enslave non-Muslims. So that's the uh, famous commentator Atfayish. And an Englishman writing uh, centuries earlier, in 17, or more than 100 years earlier, in 1799, William Eaton, refers to the jizya payment ritual uh, in this way. He said, the very words of the formulary, that's the words which the, which the Christian subjects have to say or hear on paying this, this jizya tax mean that the sum of money received is taken as a compensation for being permitted to wear their heads that year. So the jizya tax which non-Muslims pay according to Islamic law is a compensation for keeping your head. Um, one of the great uh, uh, Hanafi jurists, it's one of the schools of Islam called Abu Yusuf Yaqub, he said... Um, that, it's, that the lives and the possessions of the dhimmis are only spared on account of the payment of the poll tax. Um, a highly regarded uh, commentator um, uh, who wrote a manual called the Al-Hidayah, um, a Hanafi uh, legal manual, he said that the, the non-Muslims pay this tax in order to protect from future attack. He said jizya is a substitute for destruction, uh, but it's a substitute for destruction with regard to the future, not with regard to the past because infidels are li liable to be put to death in the future in the, in the consequence of future war. So what all the commentators say is that um, non-Muslims who are conquered living under the Islamic State, the men have to pay a tax every year, and that's understood to be a payment for their lives. 
And by paying this money each year, this tax, they redeem their heads for another year. And um, if they don't pay the tax, then their lives are forfeit. Ibn Qudama said, a protected person who violates his protection agreement, whether by refusing to pay the tax or to submit to the laws of the community, makes his person and his goods halal or licit. That means it can be freely taken and captured by Muslims. So if a Christian or a Jew doesn't pay their tax, then they're not protected and any Muslim can kill them and take all their possessions. So that's the jizya tribute that's paid by non-Muslims. Another phrase that's in that verse uh, 929 is out of hand. They pay this tax out of hand. Now, the word hand in Arabic has many meanings, like power and control, authority and assistance. And this out of hand can be interpreted in a number of different ways. Uh, one suggestion is that the Muslims are doing them a favour. Another suggestion is that it means forthcomingly and willingly that the non-Muslims pay this tax very readily and easily. Another possible interpretation, according to some commentators, is that they have to pay the tax in person themselves. And finally, in 929, there's the last phrase, which, means, which says that the non-Muslims should be made small or made tiny, belittled. The Arabic word sagir means small, and citing this expression, Muslim commentators have identified the jizya with the concept of belittling. The commentator al-Baqawi, um, from the early, early 12th century, said that being small refers to the way the tax is paid. That is, there's a humiliation involved in paying the tax, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Or it could mean the whole system of laws that they lived under, he said. Actually, the payment of the tax is a very powerful, powerful thing, a powerful ritual, and it, it explains the meaning of the status of, of, the, of the Dhimma Pact of Surrender. One of its key features is a ritual blow on the neck. So as the non-Muslim pays the tax, they are struck on the neck to show that their head uh, would have been forfeit if they didn't pay this tax. They're, they're being ritually being required to go through a beheading uh, as part of the tax payment so that they learn that they're paying for their head each time that happens. Actually, striking the neck in Islam is quite an important theme in the Quran. It's mentioned a few times. For example, uh, chapter 8. It says, when the Lord inspired the angels, saying, I'm with you, so make those who believe stand firm. I'll throw fear into the hearts of those who disbelieve. Then smite the necks and smite each finger. That's because they opposed Allah and opposed his messenger. So the Quran speaks about striking the neck as a, as a punishment for, for disbelievers. And in the Jizya payment, there's a ritual striking of the neck to show that that's what they're paying for. Actually, today, in many Arabic societies and also in societies that have been affected by Islam, like Greek society, striking someone, hitting them or punching them on the neck is an incredibly rude thing to do because it's a symbol of, of paying this tax and humiliation. And uh, it's very interesting. There's quite a number of, of uh, different practices from the early centuries of Islam that symbolize this, this ritual of, of losing your head. Um, in the early centuries, it was common to cut off the forelock of non-Muslims, so they'd cut off the front part of your hair and you'd walk around and that would show that your, your head had been spared and the hair had been cut off to show that that was the case. There's quite a number of references to that in the early Islamic literature. Also, in the early centuries, it was common to require non-Muslims to wear seals around their neck, a lead seal and a bit of rope, and they'd have to wear that for a year after they paid their tax, so they, their neck was sealed. It was a safe neck for another year because they'd paid their tax. Um, I'd like to spend a bit of time talking about the ritual of the payment and particularly the striking of the neck. Um, the great commentator Al-Badawi said, 
that this goes back to Ibn Abbas, who's one of the companions of Muhammad. According to Ibn Abbas, he said, the dhimmi is struck on the neck uh, when the tribute is collected from them. And the, the Egyptian jurist, Al-Adawi, this is as late, uh, he died in uh, 1787, so we're in the 18th century. He said, he described the payment of the, of the, of the tax like this. He said, um, following the handing over the payment, the emir, the, the Muslim in authority, will strike the dhimmi on the neck with his fist. And a man will stand near the emir and chase the dhimmi away. And then a second and a third dhimmi, a non-Muslim, would come forward and go through the same treatment. And all the Muslims, he said, are standing, watching, enjoying the spectacle. And no one can delegate the payment of the, of the tax to a third party. You have to all pay it yourself. There's quite a detailed description of this ritual that comes from um, Al-Khamagili, who was a 15th century Muslim scholar. And I'll read it in some detail. On the day of payment, the dhimmis will be assembled in a public place. They should be standing there waiting in the lowest and the dirtiest place. The acting officials representing the law shall be placed above them and shall adopt a threatening attitude so that it seems to them as well as to the others that our object is to degrade them by pretending to take their possessions. They will realise that we are doing them a favour in accepting from them the jizya and letting them go free. Then they'll be dragged one by one to the officer responsible for the exacting of payment. When paying, the dhimmi will receive a blow, that's the blow on the neck, and will be thrown aside so that he'll think he's escaped the sword through this, that is, through paying the tax. This is the way that the friends of Muhammad of the first and the last generations will act towards their infidel enemies for might belongs to Allah, to his prophet and to the believers. So um, this is a ritual of defeat, a, a ritual decapitation. And it, this comes from the 15th century. But it's very interesting that James Riley, who was an American ship's captain, was shipwrecked off the coast of, um, of Africa and was then captured and enslaved. And in 1815, he describes the Jews of Morocco paying this tax, and he describes how they were struck on the neck. Eighty years later, in 1894, an Italian Jew was also visiting Morocco, and he saw the same ritual again. In fact, when he made some comment about it, he was forced to go through it, and they gave him an extra blow on the neck, just for good measure. He complained. He said, I'm an Italian subject, and they weren't at all impressed. There's quite a lot of descriptions of the ritual of the payment of the tax in many sources. I've been able to find about 20 different sources from the, from the 9th century right through to the 20th century, from places as far apart as Bukhara in Central Asia and uh, in, in the north and west coasts of Africa, um, and down in Yemen, across the Ottoman Empire, in Persia and Syria, uh, in many different places. Some of the aspects of this ritual, in addition to the blow on the neck, include that the dhimmi has to come walking and not riding. He has to make the payment standing while the receiver is seated. He might be shaken violently and become quite distressed. The Muslim might have a whip in his hand. Uh, he might be commanded to pay the tax even though he's doing it already. He might be beaten and roughed up and dragged by the throat, perhaps with a rope around the neck. Struck on the back of the neck is one and then under the, under the ear, that's a second blow. Pulled by the beard... Um, and in some versions, they say the Muslim puts a foot on his neck and then he's thrown down and thrown aside. So this is a, a ritual of, uh, of, of really taking someone, roughing them up and, and killing them that he has to go, to go with. Um, the meaning of this is described by commentators. For example, Nasafi said, they have to be belittled. This is from Surah 929. 
That is, he said, they have to be degraded and belittled by making the dimmy come in person, walking, not riding. He should hand this over while standing and the receiver should be seated down. He should be shaken violently, agitated and in turmoil. At least you meant to make him very distressed. He should be dragged by the throat. This is a word that means a rope around the neck. And said, perform jizya yudimi. And then he's given a strong blow on the back of the neck. And there are many other similar, similar descriptions that are, that are found. Uh, it's a humiliating ritual. Actually, this only stopped in the Muslim world uh, quite late. Um, it stopped in, um, in, in Morocco in the early 20th century. We have a, a report from Morocco in 1903, from Tunisia in 1908, from Yemen. It continued in Yemen up until the Jews left in 1948. Uh, it continued in Iran till 1949. And uh, there were descriptions of the ritual in Afghanistan in 1950. So it continued quite late in the Muslim world. What these references indicate is that for more than a thousand years after conquest and in widely spread localities, uh, dhimmis, non-Muslims, were required to pay a tax which bought their life back every year in a humiliating ritual which involved uh, a ritual decapitation. This stands for 14 centuries of ritualized defeat. It's very hard for us to understand the time depth of this system. Imagine, for example, that when the Normans conquered the Anglo-Saxons in 1066, instead of creating a society where people merged, they required the Anglo-Saxons to be separate and the Anglo-Saxons would be lined up on every village green in England every year to pay a tax and be ritually stabbed in the heart to show that they were buying their life. And imagine this was continuing in England and it's been endorsed by every Archbishop of Canterbury since 1066 and it's going to continue for another four centuries from now. And, uh, until the 24th century. And it'll only stop when England gets invaded. And then you get a sense of the time depth of what happened to non-Muslims living under Islamic law over more than a thousand years. And that's why, for example, hitting someone on the neck is such a deep insult today. People still remember. It only stopped for the Jews of Yemen and Afghanistan when they left and they went on the exodus to Israel in 1948 and, and uh, into the 50s. Now, Oaths that you make or vows that you make that involve a ritual death are known uh, in spiritual warfare literature as blood oaths or a blood pact. This is like the cross the heart and hope to die thing, you know, cross my heart and hope to die. Uh, I promise to do this and if I don't, I, I'll die. So it's, it's, it involves a curse. Basically, the non-Muslims, the Christians are required to curse themselves with death by going through this ritual if they break any of these rules. Actually, there's quite a lot of secret societies and groups like witchcraft groups and others that require initiates to go through rituals of death like this. And they're very powerful and spiritually powerful. They bind people into silence and intimidation. And that spiritual power is something significant that we'll need to address. Uh, and that's why I'm, I'm explaining it in, 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 in a deep way. The, the, the dhimmi ritual of paying the jizya is an act of self-cursing. It's saying, you can take my head if I break any of the conditions of the dhimmi pact. And later, if he breaks the covenant, if he does anything that's violating the covenant, whether it's not paying the tax or not following all the conditions that we'll speak about later, in a sense, he's already signed his own death penalty when he went through that ritual. And if he's killed, it would be by his own prior permission. He's already given permission for it, and he signified it by going through that ritual. Now, the, dhimmi, the jizya ritual was really hated by the dhimmi peoples. It was psychologically very damaging. 
And uh, one commentator, uh, the, the 18th century commentator, Ibn Ajiba, uh, made a, a comment on the spiritual power of this pact to explain uh, what it really means. And I, I must admit, I was uh, quite moved and even shocked when I first discovered this description because I, thought, I think it's a very accurate description of the spiritual purpose of this pact, of the ritual. He said that Dhimmi is commanded to put his soul, good fortune and desires to death. Above all, he should kill the love of life, leadership and honour. He was to invert the longings of his soul. He is to load it down more heavily than it can bear until it's completely submissive. Thereafter, nothing will be unbearable for him. He will be indifferent to subjugation or might. Poverty and wealth will be the same to him. Praise and insult will be the same. Preventing and yielding will be the same. Lost and found will be the same. And then when all things are the same... The soul will be submissive and yield willingly what it should give. So what he's speaking about is that this ritual is intended to destroy the soul and the will of the dhimmi, of the non-Muslim living under Islam. So they will just give everything that the Muslims want from them. Because they owe everything to them according to Islamic law. They owe their very lives and all their property. So the purpose of this system is to cause the dhimmis to lose the sense of their own personhood. Um, another commentator said... It's like plundering their soul. And the dhimmi is supposed to feel, therefore, humility and gratitude towards his Muslim masters. Al-Mawardi, a famous jurist, said that the jizya tax is either a sign of contempt because of the dhimmi's unbelief or the sign of the kindness of the Muslims who granted them quarter, that is, allowed them to live instead of killing them. So humble gratitude is the intended response. It's very interesting today. Some people claim that this tax was just a tax like any other tax, who could object to paying taxes? But in fact, it's very clear, as the commentators uh, make, make clear to us and many other sources, that it wasn't just a tax, but it was a, a ritual buying of your life and it was meant to produce a sense of psychological inferiority, inferiority and indebtedness. Now, not only are there, is there the ritual of the payment of the tax, but there's also all the laws, uh, which I'd like to talk about now. Because the Dhimma Pact was not only to pay the tax, it was also to be belittled to accept all these laws. And we'll speak about uh, what this means. The impact of the whole system was devastating on the, Muslim, on the non-Muslim communities, what Sidney Griffith called a long slide into demographic insignificance. The famous Pact of Umar is a, an example, an early example of a, of a Dhimma Pact. Uh, it claims to be uh, from the second caliph, uh, uh, Caliph Umar. And um, Ibn Kathir gives a commentary on Surah 929. He's a famous commentator. And he, he quotes from the Pact of Umar and refers to it. And this is what he says about Surah 929. <clears throat> Allah said, until they pay the jizya. Oh, let me read the heading first. Paying jizya is a sign of kufr, that is disbelief and disgrace. Allah said, until they pay the jizya, that is, if they don't choose to embrace Islam, with willing submission, Ibn Kathir said that means in defeat and subservience, and feel themselves subdued, and Ibn Kathir said that means disgraced, humiliated, and belittled. Therefore, Muslims, he said, are not allowed to honor the people of the Dhimma or elevate them above Muslims, for these people of the Dhimma, the, the Jews and Christians, are miserable, disgraced, and humiliated. Um, Muslim recorded from Abu Hurairah that the Prophet said, do not initiate the salam. So he said, Muhammad said, don't greet these people with a blessing. And if you meet any of them in a road, force them to its narrowest alley. That is why the leader of the faithful 
Umar bin al-Khattab, may Allah be pleased with him, demanded his well-known conditions be met by Christians, these conditions that ensured their continued humiliation, degradation and disgrace. So he's speaking about the Pact of Umar. This was imposed upon them to ensure that the non-Muslims would, would be eternally disgraced, humiliated and degraded. And Sharia law built many laws based on this idea of the degradation and humiliation of the conquered peoples to keep them in their place. Now, the Dhimma laws, uh, which described and defined the role of non-Muslims living under Sharia law, were many and varied, and I'd like just to go over some of them now. Under Islam, any Muslim who converts to Christianity or Judaism is subject to the death penalty. So a Muslim can't join these communities. <clears throat> also, conversion between faiths are forbidden. The jurist said if anyone changes their faith, they should become a Muslim. Because it's a concession to them to keep their faith. They can't go changing it. <clears throat> It's also forbidden to try and convert a Muslim. So if a dhimmi says to a Muslim, why don't you follow Jesus Christ as Lord, that's a violation of their pact of surrender. It's forbidden to stop or hinder a fellow dhimmi from converting to Islam. So if your son says, I want to be a Muslim, and you try and stop him, you're breaking your pact of surrender. Also, anyone who converts to Islam gains preferential inheritance rights. They could become the inheritor of the whole family's property for being a Muslim. And if a spouse converted, she'd gain sole guardianship of the children, be automatically di divorced and, and would become the sole guardian of the children. Also restrictions on marriage. A Muslim man can marry a Christian or a Jewish woman, a dhimmi woman, but their home is a Muslim household and the children are Muslims. But it's forbidden for a Muslim woman to marry or have any kind of liaison with a Christian or Jewish man. Also there are restrictions on worship and the practice of faith. No new churches could be built after conquest. Any damaged churches are not allowed to be repaired. This is a serious problem even today in countries like Egypt where if a church uh, wants to renovate uh, its buildings, a congregation wants to renovate its buildings, very often the state will stop them from doing it because there's this age-old principle that they're not allowed to repair or, or build new buildings. Dhimmis were also forbidden from any public display of their religion, no crosses, funeral processions, no bells, no loud singing. If you look at photographs of Jerusalem from the late 19th century, when Jerusalem was still under Muslim control, uh, there are no crosses on any of the churches in Jerusalem at that time, and the bells didn't ring either. In fact, when Hamas took over Gaza, one of the first things they did was to stop all the bells from ringing in the churches that were left. Also, dhimmis are forbidden or selling Christian books, according to some versions of these conditions. It's also forbidden uh, to criticise Muslims or oppose them in any way, to raise a hand against them or to curse a Muslim. That's a pact violation. Also, dhimmi testimony is invalid in court against a Muslim. And this applies throughout the whole Islamic world in one way or another. So if a Muslim accuses a Christian of a serious crime, what, what Sharia law regards as serious, like trying to convert a Muslim or trying to make a relationship that's forbidden, like a relationship with a Muslim woman uh, for a Christian man, uh, that would be a, a violation of this uh, pact as well. Um, but, but you couldn't bear testimony on your own, own behalf. So if a Christian woman is raped she can't bear testimony against the, the, the Muslim attacker. So if your neighbor, Muslim neighbor takes your property, you cannot bear witness against him, and it makes Christians very vulnerable. Also forbidden from bearing arms or having any means of self-defense. You'll see in, even in Iraq today, if a church needs to defend itself and protect itself from attack, either from the Sunnis or the Shiite radicals, they have to employ Muslim guards, because if Christians have weapons, that's regarded as extremely offensive and a violation of their surrendered, protected status. So they're not allowed to protect themselves. 
The blood of a Muslim is not equal to the blood of a dhimmi. So if a Muslim kills a dhimmi, you cannot put that Muslim to death. It's forbidden to enact the death penalty against a Muslim for killing a Christian or a Jew. But if you kill a Muslim, you have to put him to death. So there's a big difference, the different blood. In fact, in, in Saudi Arabia today, they've got different values of blood. Um, so, for example, a Hindu woman might be 2,000, uh, a Hindu man might be 4,000, a Christian woman might be worth 8, a Christian man might be worth 16, a Muslim woman might be worth 32,000, and, and, and a Muslim man might be worth 64,000. Um, so th there's different values of the blood of each person. These are the compensation that you would pay to the family if uh, you happen to cause their death. Also, dhimmis were, um, were forbidden from... Um, from moving and going to another territory. They weren't allowed to flee. They weren't allowed to help the enemies of Islam. They had to house and feed Muslim soldiers whenever told, they were told to. If, you, if a dhimmi killed another dhimmi and then converted to Islam, he'd be let off a death sentence, so that's quite advantageous. Also forbidden from criticizing Islam. And the Pact of Umar, the early pact, says that dhimmis are forbidden to teach their children the Quran or teach them Arabic. They're not allowed to teach them about Islam. So the whole system they're living under they're meant to obey the rules, but they're not supposed to study them or criticize them. Uh, forbidden from criticizing Muhammad. Any sort of criticism of Muhammad uh, breaks your pact of surrender, and you, you, you have to face the music for that. Also, not allowed to exercise authority. Dhimmi's Christians, Jews, uh, strictly speaking, not allowed to have any authority in a Muslim society. Yeah, there's even fatwas in Saudi Arabia today that says that a non-Muslim cannot be employed over a Muslim in Saudi Arabia. A dhimmi also can't act as a guardian for a Muslim. So um, a, a Muslim child can't have a, a dhimmi adult guardian. Now, that means that if, uh, if your child converts to Islam, you lose custody of the child. You cannot be the guardian of the child anymore. A dhimmi also couldn't own a Muslim slave. That's another restriction. And also there are restrictions on appearance and housing. Dhimmi houses have to be smaller and lower than Muslim houses. If ever you visit the Jewish quarter in, uh, in parts of Spain, the Jewish quarters in some of those old Muslim cities, you'll see the houses are really tiny. It wasn't because the Jews were short people. It was because they weren't allowed to have tall houses. Dhimmi's have to vacate his seat for a Muslim. Dhimmi uh, has to get out of the way of Muslims in the street. It even says that in the Pact of Umar. By the way, about the height of buildings, what you'll find in, in really strict Muslim areas, wherever there's a tall and impressive church, Muslims will want to build a mosque that's higher next to it. So in Bethlehem Square, um, Manger Square there, where there's a church there in Bethlehem, uh, the Muslims have built a mosque right next to it and higher than the Christian church. Uh, Dhimmis weren't allowed to ride the horses in the normal way. They had to ride... Si they had, sorry, they weren't allowed to ride horses at all. And if they rode donkeys, they had to ride side saddle. And they had to adopt a, hu a humble appearance... And there were lots of restrictions on, 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 on physical appearance um, in the early centuries, the cutting off of the hair on the front, uh, and later other restrictions on clothing, wearing a special belt. Uh, some areas they had to wear different coloured shoes, um, um, and uh, in some parts of, uh, of Morocco, the Jews weren't allowed to wear shoes outside of, of the ghetto, for example. And there are lots of different reasons. Um, lots of different rules. And there are two main reasons. One is to belittle the dhimmis, and another is so they wouldn't look like Muslims. Um, so there's a tradition uh, from Muhammad. Muhammad said, I've been sent with a sword in my hand to command people to worship Allah and associate no partners with him. I command you to belittle and subjugate those who disobey me, for those who look alike are of the same. So you're not allowed to look like um, a Muslim.
In fact, often non-Muslims tried to look like Muslims. They just wanted to disappear into the crowd, and the Muslims would keep making up these rules so they wouldn't look like Muslims. And there were even rules that if they, if they went to the public baths where people were naked, the non-Muslims had to wear a bell around their neck or a seal around their neck or their ankle so the Muslims would know immediately these were non-Muslims and they wouldn't make the mistake of blessing them as they saw them there in the bath. Even naked, they couldn't be blessed. In fact, the coloured patch that the Nazis applied to Jews was invented in the medieval Islam, and they required um, Jews and Christians to wear these, these kinds of patches as well. In addition to these clothing restrictions, there are often local rules that were very specific. For example, in Morocco, in the 19th century, Jews had to require certain humiliating, had to, had to perform certain humiliating tasks that Muslims wouldn't do, like cleaning sewers or removing dead animals or salting the heads of executed criminals. Or they had to walk, walk barefooted outside the ghetto, as I mentioned, or work for low pay for the public authorities, or they couldn't drink water from public fountains, and, or if they, were, if they were subjected to a flogging, they had to personally pay the fee of the person that flogged them. So lots of rules like that. And in the Shiites had also purity rules, so they had a rule that if a Jew couldn't go out in the rain, because if they were in the rain and the water touched them, it might splash on the ground, and that, that water that had been made impure by the touching the Jew would then touch the foot of the Muslim. So Jews weren't allowed to walk in the rain. So all these laws applied upon non-Muslims uh, under, under Islamic law. This fitted together um, with the idea that Muslims were superior. In, in chapter 3, verse 110, you, the Ummah, the Muslim nation, are the best nation that's ever been brought forward, forbidding honor and forbidding dishonor and believing Allah. So this whole system was meant to reinforce for Muslims the idea that they were superior. And in verse 110, speaking about non-Muslims, abasement shall be pitched on them wherever they are come upon, except unless they're in a bond with Allah, that is, the dhimmer is their only protection, otherwise they will be made very low, and even under the dhimmer they're made very low as well. Now, one of the consequences of this system is that dhimmis were very vulnerable to violence. For lots of reasons. Firstly, any kind of pretext could be raised to say that they'd broken their pact and were no longer protected. Also, if someone attacked them, um, they couldn't bear witness uh, to protect themselves. So violence and theft and rape and abuse against dhimmis is very, very widespread. And actually, the Muslim communities, in a sense, live under the possibility or the expectation that if the dhimmis broke the laws, then the jihad could restart and they could legitimately kill them or take their property or, or rape and enslave their women and their children. So there's this constant threat of violence, and under a constant threat of violence, there's a possibility of it happening, uh, even if it's not in any sense justified by Islamic law. So they live a very perilous and, uh, and difficult situation. And again and again, where you see violence or attacks breaking out against non-Muslim communities, um, there's these three things happening. One is looting, killing, and raping, which are the things that are allowed to happen in jihad, and there are many, many examples of that that had happened down, down through history. A famous example was in um, 1066 uh, when um, uh, one of the uh, Jewish communities in, uh, in Andalusia, what is now Spain, was just wiped out. And the reason for that is that the Grand Vizier of the city um, had been a Jew. He'd been promoted by the leader, Muslim leader, into a position of authority, but that really offended the local. Um, the local Muslims, and they were, preached against, they were preaching against the Jews, and that resulted in um, a genocide of the men, 
and the women and children were raped and taken as slaves, uh, all the property was taken. And those sorts of things have happened again and again through history. But I'm going to speak more about uh, the implications of that and the implications of, uh, um, of the, the failure, in a way, of the Vimmer Pact uh, when it was considered that the, the, that the non-Muslims had broken the pact. In the next session, I'll explain the implications, the lived implications of this, uh, of this system and, and the danger, really, uh, that non-Muslims uh, were under and the, some of the, the, the ways in which that's worked out in history. That's the end of this session. <laughs>